0: Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Giliadi, Ph.D. 18. God's Reversal of Circumstances What can Latter-day Saints learn from Isaiah's Covenant Theology that informs us why and at what point God reverses His end-time people's circumstances? Welcome to podcast number 18, God's Reversal of Circumstances where God reverses his people's circumstances. That is, his covenant people who've been depressed and oppressed for centuries now. And he's going to deliver them from this awful state at the very time of the end when destructions are happening all around the earth. When God's covenant people of today have proven unworthy of the gospel, and he takes it to them, and everything changes. But There are those, of course, who take it to them, as there were anciently apostles who took it to the Gentiles, so now that reverses itself, there are Gentiles who take it back to the house of Israel. We're going to read some scriptures that we've read before. Each time we do repeat them, of course, we repeat them in different situations, different contexts. This time it's about God's reversing his people's circumstances and putting down the ones who have become wicked and don't repent and and raising up the ones who are repenting and returning to him. we start with some um, isaiah thirty seven verses thirty five through thirty six where the protection clause of the Davidic covenant is operates on behalf of God's people under King Hezekiah in Jerusalem when the Assyrian army sieges Jerusalem and commands the people to come out to them. They will give them other lands of inheritance. They'll take them off their national base, put them elsewhere so they'll lose their patriotism. They'll become captive nations. But the people keep the king's law, and King Hezekiah keeps God's law, a descendant of David. So the Lord is bound under the terms of the Davidic covenant to protect both king and people and to deliver them from a mortal threat. This becomes really important as a type for us today because we ourselves are going to come, and all of God's people are going to come. We're going to survive into the millennial age. We're going to come under that very same threat by the enemy, by the arch tyrant, by the king of Assyria, a latter-day king of Assyria this time. And the Lord says, I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now we know that King Hezekiah from a previous podcast, right? You remember how he had to pay a price for his people's deliverance. He had to answer for the disloyalties of his people to the Lord, and as King Mosiah also did, Before they changed to a government of governors or, or chief judges, so forth, before they went to a collective covenant like the Sinai covenant. And here the people are still under the terms of the Davidic covenant, All covenants actually will be operating in the end time, the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinai collective covenant, and also the individual covenant of the Davidic covenant, because these saviors, these end time saviors, will all be individuals uh, covenanting with the Lord to answer for the the disloyalties of the people to whom they are ministering the gospel, who will newly be coming into God's covenant, being restored to it, and whom they are delivering first spiritually and then physically from the bad stuff, let's call it, that happens in the end time. So the Lord says, he's going to do it for his own sake and for the sake of my servant David, meaning, as we discussed before, that he's going to keep his part of the agreement when the king or the savior person does his part. We're talking about temporal salvation or physical protection, guaranteed under the terms of the Davidic covenant. Which follows and emulates the proxy Savior role of Jesus in obtaining our spiritual salvation. That we're talking only about the protection clause, the physical protection clause. And then the angel of Jehovah went out and slew 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And that was divine intervention, as we discussed before. So it shows how the Lord here reverses his people's circumstances because. From that time, Assyria began to lose power, actually, in the earth. That conquered most of the nations of the world. It went down into Egypt and even conquered Egypt, the other great superpower of the day, as it will again in the end time. A latter-day Assyria will conquer the, the modern world, including the great superpower of our day, which is America. And they will succeed for a while until something like this happens where the Lord intervenes. And actually in the book of Isaiah there are two ways that the latter-day Assyrian alliance loses its power. One is by being fought in mortal combat and the other is through a divine intervention like this where they are killed simply because of the power of God manifesting itself among them. So let's move on to Second Nephi chapter 6, verses 12. The repentant Gentiles don't fight against Zion. Now we know that there is... This division coming, which we discussed before, and so there are those Gentiles who repent, and those Gentiles who harden their hearts inside with the enemy. That's among us, Latter-day Saints. It's mostly speaking to us, Latter-day Saint Gentiles. Blessed are the Gentiles, they of whom the prophet, that is Isaiah, has written. For behold, if it so be that they repent and fight not against Zion and do not unite themselves to that great and abominable church, they shall be saved. But there must be an awful pull or a temptation to join, to unite themselves with that great and abominable church. Otherwise, it wouldn't be using this kind of language. And we saw in a previous podcast, the last one, how the Nephites were seduced to join the secret combinations before they knew that they were even part of them. So there must be a tremendous temptation. To conform politically, so to speak, with the powers that be, and just find yourself on the other side very quickly. The Gentiles who are blessed in this case, of course, are those kings and queens of the Gentiles who end up ministering the gospel to the house of Israel. And it says, For the Lord God will fulfill his covenants which he hath made to his children. And for this cause, the prophet has written these things. Prophet Isaiah has written these things. And the prophet Isaiah, of course, is being quoted by Jacob, by Nephi, by Jesus, by Abinadi, by Mormon, others in the Book of Mormon. So there's an amazing deference given to the prophet Isaiah and his words that are to be filled in the end time, in the very time that they will be understood at that time. It says the book will be understood and the eyes of the blind will see and the deaf will hear the words of the book. The book of Isaiah. But moving on to verse Nephi 14, verse 7, where the world, and especially us Latter-day Saints, are given the option of peace and life eternal or captivity and destruction. Again, like we've read this before in a different context of the great division that's coming. And this is about a great division, but it's also about the reversal of circumstances God's people and the end-time experience. It is, For the time cometh, said the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, until they're being brought down into captivity and also into destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil of which has been spoken. So there comes a point in time, it's an ultimatum. There is no more in between. You know, you can't just sit on the fence at this point in time. It's a world polarization. And it happens first among God's own people. And they go two ways. Either they're seduced, on the one hand, or they repent on the other. And the work is, it's called the work, the Great and Marvelous work. It has to do with a great division because the Great and Marvelous work has two sides to it, two halves of the coin, deliverance and destruction also, simultaneously. Deliverance for the house of Israel, destruction for the Gentiles who don't repent, who harden their hearts, and also destruction for the world at large that follows after that. So the one is taken out of captivity, and the one into captivity, and to destruction. Then we continue in 1 Nephi 14, verses 8 through 10, right after that, the church of the lamb, or the church of the devil, these two churches. It came to pass that when the angel had spoken these words, he said unto me, Rememberest thou the covenants of the Father unto the house of Israel? These covenants the great and abominable church removed when it removed the plain and precious parts. And because those things are spoken together, it means that the plain and precious parts have to do with the covenants of the Lord. Because the Father himself, or the Lord, he does remember the covenants. He remembers all his covenants. He operates within the parameters of his covenants. Everything he does is about covenants. Covenants, covenants. I said unto him, Yea, and it came to pass that he said unto me, Look. And behold that great and abominable church, which is the mother of abominations, whose founder is the devil. And he said unto me, Behold, there are save two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God, belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations. She is the whore of all the earth. Again, it's either on the one hand or on the other. There's no in-between in that day. Now, of course, that also happens in the book of Isaiah. There are two cities symbolizing these two entities. There are two women, the Lord's wife and the unfaithful wife. And there are two covenants, the covenant with death, that we discussed last time, and also the covenant of life, chapter 55. They're either of the one or the other. And the one with whom the Lord fulfills the covenants, his covenants, of course, are his people who repent beginning with the Gentiles who repent, those who are now the covenant people of the Lord. Let's moving on to 1 Nephi 14, verses 13 through 15, which is all part of the same passage, speaking about a great reversal of circumstances between the Lord's covenant people and the Gentiles of today, or those who have been lording it over them or oppressing them, world powers as well. The power of God descends upon the saints, First Nephi 14, 13-15. It came to pass that I beheld that the great mother of abominations did gather together multitudes upon the face of all the earth among all the nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God. And of course, that means to fight against his people who have taken upon themselves the Lamb of God's name. There comes a time when evil becomes so threatening and so entrenched and so powerful that they're going to decide to wipe us out, just as the Lamanites did the Nephites who believed in Christ, and so forth in other instances of history where the true followers of Christ were persecuted no end. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth. Now, note the context in which this empowerment from God happens. As the prophet Joseph Smith remarked, it's called the Day of Power, which appears in the book of Psalms and other scriptures. It's a time still future, as we see here, because it is only when the great and abominable church threatens God's people with destruction that this power of God comes down upon the saints. It has not yet happened. This is an extraordinary endowment of power. It'll be the same kind of power as we saw manifested by Moses in dividing the Red Sea and so forth, having the Israelites walk across the Red Sea on dry land, or raising the dead, or bringing fire out of heaven, or whatever it may be. That is the kind of power we're talking about, that Isaiah and Book of Mormon prophecies talk about. When Israel comes home in the Exodus, for example, they walk through the fire, through the waters, through the mountain ranges. Uh, The elements cannot hurt them, nor can foreign armies hurt them. That is the kind of power, but it does not happen until extreme wickedness has entrenched itself and threatens to destroy the people of God. And they were armed with righteousness and the power of God in great glory. So, this is great glory, not the current situation. And it came to pass that I beheld that the wrath of God was poured out upon the great and abominable church, insomuch that there were wars and rumors of wars among all nations and kindreds of the earth. So, here we see this hardening of the heart leading to captivity and to destruction on the one hand as the whore of all the earth or the church of the devil who's everybody that's not the church of the lamb that they're coming into destruction while the ones that were suppressed by them were about to be wiped out by them they kept trusting in the lord they remained loyal to the lord they did not were not seduced by the secret combinations or any such thing They remained faithful to the Lord, and the Lord came through for them in the end, even if it was the law of the last minute, as I call it. They'll be tested to the utmost. We will be tested to the utmost. But the elect of God will be delivered out of it, of course. Moving on to another verse in that chapter, verse Nephi 14, verse 3. The great pit filled by its own diggers, is my heading. That great pit which hath been digged for the destruction of men shall be filled by those who digged it unto their utter destruction. As we know, verse 7, that utter destruction is both temporal and spiritual. It's physical. It says, talks about it being in the flesh and so forth. And you know, that is just kind of the sum of the great and marvelous work in action, destruction part of it, and also at the same time, God's people will be delivered out of it in this great reversal of circumstances. Now we go to Isaiah, chapter 49 of Isaiah, verses 24 and 25, which is quoted in 1 Nephi 21, 24 through 25, and Second Nephi 6, verses 16 and 17. It says, Can the warrior's spoil be taken from him, or the tyrant's captives escape free? Now the warrior is, in the book of Isaiah, is the king of Assyria, latter day arch tyrant, is described in verse chapter 10 of the book of Isaiah, other places, all through the book of Isaiah, in fact, under various names and keywords and code names and personas. Can the warrior's spoil be taken from him and the tyrant's captives escape free? Because in chapter 10, the Lord sends him to despoil his wicked people, despoil us, Latter-day Saints, who have left our covenant privileges and abandoned them for the world, and for worse things than that, as we discussed previously, The Lord commissions him really against his own people and he becomes the Lord's instrument of punishment of us today and except for those who repent of us whom the Lord delivers from the king of Assyria. So he's the arch tyrant called the warrior and the tyrant here. Yet thus says Jehovah, the warrior's spoil shall indeed be taken from him and the tyrant's captives escape free. Well, We know that the house of Israel is delivered out of captivity and dispersion by the spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles. In the end, that spoil, the spoil is taken captive the peoples of the house of Israel in various ways by conquering the world and enslaving them and so forth. That spoil of the house of Israel, the elect of the house of Israel, will be taken from him. And then the Lord says, I myself will contend with your contenders. I will deliver your children. Again, meaning the elect of the house of Israel, as we learn from other scriptures. We tie all these scriptures together with one another, that's such a beautiful thing. In the book of Isaiah and in the book of Mormon, that quote Isaiah, this beautiful picture emerges that's so coherent. You're already finding out from these podcasts that the scenario keeps repeating itself in various ways. And so it really ties together so many parts of the scriptures, so many parts of the end-time scenario, it contained in these scriptures that we get a very solid understanding of everything the Lord plans to do in the end time, so that we know our part. We know what we must do, and when the time is right, when the Lord reveals His arm, we'll be ready to participate. Right? Are you going to be ready? I hope to be. Let me go to Isaiah forty-nine again, a different part of the chapter, verses eight and nine, quoted in First Nephi twenty-one eight and nine, Jehovah's end-time servant. Now we just spoke about the tyrant, and now we're speaking about the servant. These two figures, the tyrant and the servant, are contemporaries of one another in the end time scenario, kind of like David and Goliath in the Old Testament. And in the end, the David succeeds in destroying the tyrant. We'll see that fulfilled when that scenario unravels. The servant himself, being a savior on Mount Zion, so to speak, he also has to pay the price, as Hezekiah did, for his people's deliverance. And everybody who serves the Lord in that way and becomes a deliverer or a savior needs to go through a refining process to become purified and sanctified, to experience this descent phase of being tested every which way in his loyalty to the Lord. And when he passes those tests, then the Lord empowers him. He's reborn spiritually and even physically and renewed in the flesh and translated likely because those are the ones that are going to be needed to withstand the powers of evil and the elements in that day. And as we can look forward to all of the, these servants, these 144,000, according to John, the book of Revelation, will be translated beings. They will have that empowerment from God. And that's, and the power of God descends upon the saints, the covenant people of the Lord, from their captive and from their fallen and from their dispersed state and bring them to Zion through all of these destructions that are going on simultaneously. And he says, Thus says Jehovah, at a favorable time I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have come to your aid. So first of all he's tested. He goes through humiliation and his descent phase of persecution and so forth and suffering. And when he's passed every test and pays the price like King Hezekiah, then the Lord comes to his aid at a favorable time or a time of my favor, I've answered you, answered your prayer, your petitions, your intercessions on behalf of the house of Israel, and so forth. In the day of salvation, I've come to your aid. Those two things are in parallel. I've created you and appointed you. Now, this is really interesting when he says that because you know, the Lord created everybody. But when Isaiah says create in this instance and others like it, he means recreated you. And the whole creation concept in the scriptures from the time of Adam and Eve, recreating the elements to form an earth, recreating Adam and Eve from a previous existence that they had, recreating us on a higher spiritual level, recreating his servants in the end time. Because once they pass all the tests of God, they ascend to a higher spiritual level, they're reborn on that spiritual level, and that's called a creation, or a recreation, or a restitution, or a regeneration and appointed you, and the word appoint is also important because you follow the word appoint, it's a key word, all through the book of Isaiah, and you see that the Lord appoints this servant in his various personas, and wherever that verb appoint appears, you have a persona of the Lord's end time servant, and that's really significant because then you can tie all these different personas together and say, that's the servant, and this is the servant, and he appears under his Cyrus, aspect, or under his David aspect, or under his Moses aspect, and so forth. And these passages are linked in the book of Isaiah by this word, appoint, as it is in this case. I have created you and appointed you to be a covenant of the people. That's his people. To be a covenant of the people. That's a really interesting term because it's like Moses becomes the mediator of God's covenant with his people. And so he does here. if. This person personifies God's covenant, so to speak. He personifies God's covenant, and the people have to come to God through him. That is indeed the case. He's a mediator like Moses. And if they don't accept him, of course, then they have no part with God's end-time scenario or with God himself. To restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates, because of the destructions of the end-time, there will be much destruction, much desolation. And those lands of inheritance will have to be rebuilt, as they have been in past instances where there have been massive destructions, like that among the Nephites. There was massive destruction. They rebuilt all the ancient cities before, and they inherited them and became a blessed people of God. And the reportioning the desolate estates has a parallel in Joshua's appointing the lands of the Canaanites when Israel conquered the Canaanites and wiped them out. It was a mercy to wipe them out at that point uh, because they had nowhere to go spiritually. They had rejected every word of God, sent it to them as Nephi tells us. And so it was a mercy to kill them, but, but they had to rebuild the lands and they had to start all over, so to speak. So all of this is his job, the servant, He's created and appointed to be a covenant of the people, a mediator of the covenant, so to speak, to restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates, to say to the captives, come forth, and to those in darkness, show yourselves, the captives of the house of Israel. And he's the one that organizes the kings and queens of the Gentiles to do that thing, to do that restoration of the house of Israel. They are to come forth out of darkness and from captivity, because they were subject to the powers of darkness. They were subject to the great and church, the church of the devil, they were subject to the king of Assyria. All these are powers of darkness and chaos. And they shall feed along the way and find pasture on all barren heights, that is, on their return journey to Zion, when they are protected by the power invested in these kings and queens of the Gentiles, these end-time servants of the Lord. As we learn from the book of Revelation, they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. That's a divine empowerment. All right, so we are nearing the end of this. We're going to summarize real quick what we've discussed thus far. God reverses his people's circumstances when their enemies seek to destroy them. And that is the trigger. When the enemies seek to destroy us or destroy God's people, that is when God does this. Again, I call it the law of the last minute because people will be tested to the utmost in their loyalties toward the Lord at that time. And many will give up and not remain loyal. They'll side with the enemy thinking they have the advantage because there's more of them than us and so forth. But the Lord will turn that back upon their own heads. The time frame is the end time when the great whore threatens God's people of the house of Israel and his saints. And moving forward, are we familiar with the Davidic covenant and know how it operates? Because that is key to our doing our part, right? And also key to the deliverance of the house of Israel. Without that, without our knowing that and taking it on, they're not going to be delivered. They're not going to deliver themselves. They don't have the ability. Next time, do Isaiah's prophecies predict a war in this land like the ones in the past? You'll see that. Just talking about the lands of America. And recommended reading or listening would be Isaiah decoded ascending the ladder to heaven. Thank you for listening today. You have a wonderful evening or day, whichever it may be. And join us again next time, and please share these with others. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn Types of a Great War in the Land. Does an explicit war pattern in the Book of Mormon's war narratives, typify a great war to end all wars that Isaiah predicts will precede Jehovah's coming.